All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Philippians. Now, the last time we were here, we were completing chapter one when Paul was giving his update, which we talked about last time. One of Paul's uh, primary reasons for writing this letter to the Philippians is to update, update them on his well-being. And so this is basically what we saw in the last time as Paul let them know that although he was imprisoned, he was doing well. However, one of the uh, benefits of his imprisonment was that the gospel was being spread to the Praetorian God and many of those who were involved in Paul's imprisonment as well as because of Paul's imprisonment, there were some who have been now become emboldened to preach the gospel. And he talked about those two particular groups. One group were emboldened to preach the gospel out of a love for Paul and a desire to see the gospel of Jesus Christ spread. And then there was another group who in some manner or another were intent on causing Paul harm through their preaching of the gospel. But nevertheless, they were preaching from selfish ambition, but nevertheless, the truth of the gospel, that's what's important to understand. The truth of the gospel of the death, the burial, resurrection of the person and work of Jesus, the gospel, the truth of the gospel was still being preached. Thus, Paul's response to whether the gospel was preached in truth, in sincerity or in by selfish ambition. It didn't matter. As long as the gospel was being preached, Paul rejoiced and he said that he would continue to rejoice. And then he turned his focus uh, back to the Philippians to speak of how he desired for them to continue to live righteous lives, whether he was either imprisoned or whether he was actually set free. And it seemed that he had this mindset that he would be set free. But in continuing this concept of being imprisoned, he talked about for him to live is Christ to die is gain. And we talked about that to a great extent. That is to live on, meaning he would look forward to a time when he would most likely not be imprisoned and will continue the work of Christ. Thus, it would be gain for him in that sense, a gain in fruitful labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. Albeit, albeit such a life would be uh, literally surrounded by difficulties, consternations and hardships, even such hardships like he was suffering at this present moment with his Roman imprisonment. So to live would be uh, for the glory of Christ continued fruit in the labors of Christ, but it would mean great personal suffering for the apostle. Thus he said to die is gain. Die would be the benefit. That is, even as he said in the text, it is far better for him to die in a sense, not, not in this, the word of self-serving, that that's not the proper word. That word kind of crossed my mind for a moment, but the right way of thinking is 
a greater personal benefit. And that's what Paul was talking about. So Paul began to speak of himself in a sense. He, he's not saying it in an overt sense, but he is inferring the sense because again, he is relating one of the themes in the book of Philippians. And this is what we're going to talk about in chapter two. One of the primary, primary themes in the book of first uh, uh, <laughs> Philippians to consider others greater than yourselves, to consider the needs of others beyond the needs of yourself in the sense of humility. And so this is what Paul is doing as he is inferring from his own personal example, because remember, he also said it is as if he has a decision to make whether to live or to die. But nevertheless, his desire is to continue on living, even though that would mean great suffering for him, but it would be beneficial for the Philippians. Thus, he establishes that theme from his own personal example. That is living on in the flesh so that he could continue his ministry for the benefit of others, even namely the Philippians. But the point is, considering their needs beyond his own needs. Okay. But anyway, nevertheless, and that's when he talked about continuing to live right, that conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. So whether he is free or whether he continues in prison, he wants to hear of how they live good lives, holy lives and righteous lives, understanding that even living such righteous lives will mean they will suffer just like Paul at this present time is suffering. And also too, as we prepare to move in chapter two, understand the sufferings of Jesus himself. Okay. Now with all of that, let's continue into chapter two, uh, because of the very nature of the text of chapter two, we will not be able to do all of this chapter in one video but we'll probably split the video into two separate videos. But what Paul is now doing is he is continuing uh, to push that idea of humility and considering others greater than, better than yourself, or putting the needs of others before your own needs. And here he overtly emphasizes the life of the Messiah himself. Okay. So this is when we're going to get to this particular section it is often called the Carmen Christi. That is it's Latin, which means the hymn or ode to Christ, the Carmen Christi. It is considered one of Paul's greatest theological writings concerning both the person and the works of Jesus and how Jesus went to his works. That is in the sense of humility and service to the needs of others. He put their needs before his own glory. And we'll talk about all of that in the text itself. Okay. So this is considered one of the greatest texts of all of Paul's writing. So we hope to be able to finish at least verses one through 18. All right. So without further ado, let's just simply get into the text. Continuing Paul's concept, Paul's idea, that command for considering the needs of others 
above or alongside of, even above your own needs, following after the example of Jesus himself. One, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, so he starts it off and I kind of like that too. That therefore, so you see that there is a clear relationship between what Paul has said previously and what he is saying now. That is based upon what has been said, what Paul wants to hear of them living godly lives. Live, hear of, he wants to hear of them, whether he is set free or still in prison, how they are living as citizens of heaven. So he says it almost like in a conditional sense. In a, in a, okay, okay, I don't wanna prolong it, but I do want you guys to see this too. In a similar sense, like when Satan came to Jesus and he said, if you are the son of God, if you are, that is in a conditional way, then what? Turn these stones to bread. All right. So in that sense, but Satan was not so much as saying if, if, but more so in the sense of saying since, since, but if it's, 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 it's like a feel of it implied, a feel of that if implied, but more so of the idea of that sense. If something is and since it is true, right? So if something is and indeed it is true. So if something is and indeed it is true, what? If there is any encouragement in Christ, is there encouragement from Christ? Yes. Is, is, is there any consolation of love? The answer is what? Yes. Fellowship of the spirit, affections and compassions. All of those things are not just ifs and conditions, but since they are indeed true, these are the spiritual benefits that we have from our Lord from or through our salvation encouragement, consolation, fellowship of the spirit, affection and compassion. All of these things are true. So Paul says, what? Make my joy complete. As he speaks to the Philippian congregation, fulfill my joy. In other words, make me happy with you. It goes back. It ties right back when he says, let me be happy. Let me be joyful that whether I'm free or whether I'm still in prison, I want to hear that you're still doing well in Christ Jesus. And this is the idea that he continues to make in saying, make my joy being complete. And now he begins to speak of another. And we've already hinted to that at the end of the previous video in chapter one. He hints at another of one of those themes or even sub themes that we have in the book of Philippians. And that is the theme of unity, unity for the congregation. We understand unity for God's people. And how does he express that desire for unity? Being of the same mind, maintaining what 
the same love united in spirit. The idea one spirit being intent on one purpose and that idea of one spirit and one purpose is one mindset. But the point that he's bringing is having unity. Now, let me make an aside, a comment aside. For the most part, all of Paul's letters, his epistles are occasional epistles. And what we mean by occasional is they were written with a purpose in mind to address something that was going on in the congregation, whether a question or whether certain activities within the congregation. And we can see in this epistle that this is the case as Paul stresses unity a number of times in this epistle. And even once we get to the end of the epistle, he's going to deal with two women who seem to have some type of disagreement with one another. And Paul is going to urge and command unity, a cease from strife. So it seems that there was an issue of arrogance, an issue of a, a sense of self bold, self boldness among the Philippians and, and a sense of a, a overconfidence and selfishness, a certain sense of prideful arrogance among the Philippians. And thus Paul has to urge them for unity and selfless service, selfless service towards one another, considering the things of others. But anyway, enough of that. But you can see this in the text itself. And as Paul here stresses that unity. All right, let's continue. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So let's stop there because we're getting ready to get into that common Christian, that song, that hymn to Christ. Okay. But we're not there yet. So now we get to one of the primary themes of Paul and what he is really emphasizing in this epistle. He says what to them do nothing to us as well from selfishness. That is purely from a motivated self-interest, from self-interest, selfishness, or empty deceit. And I like when he says that word empty deceit. Uh, kinodoxion, that's the word in Greek, kinodoxion. And that is translated, I like the way King James uh, translate that, vain glory. And that is the sense of vanity, and glory. So put that, those two concepts together, the vanity thinking of yourself, that, that thinking in a wrongful way of yourself, glory, that doxa. So that thinking in an, a wrongful elevated way of yourself. You see what he's saying now? Uh, kenodoxion, that, that elevated wrong thinking, thinking of yourself to be somebody. That's the idea. So from selfish selfishness, do nothing from it, from empty deceit, but what, and these are strong buts in the Greek, and we'll see that in by the use of the term Allah, 
which is a strong contrast, not from uh, the arrogance of pride and selfishness, but from humility of mind, that humbleness. What? What should you do? What are we commanded to do? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And that is the very opposite of the mindset of this day in this culture, in Western American culture, Western culture, in American culture. It is all about you. Everything is about you. The attention should be about you. The mindset, everything. And that gets on even my spiritual nerves is all about the individual. But the very essence of Christianity is that it's not about you. And the very commandment of Paul even here is to regard one another as what? More important than yourselves is not about you and the world is not centered around you. He says, consider the thoughts, the feelings, the needs of other people and even putting their needs above your own needs. And I believe that that's an actual place of repentance for many Christians, because the last thing they do is put other people's needs in front of their needs. It's all about how they think, how they feel, what they want and what's important to them. And as far as other people, maybe it's a maybe. But anyway, let's go on with the text. So what is he saying here? We're here at the highlight of the book, the very central theme of the book regarding others more important than yourselves. And so, and how do you do that? How is, how do you do that in the practical sense? Notice he, he gives the answer to that in verse number four, by not merely looking out for your own interest, your own personal interest, but what also being aware and looking out for the interest of others. What's good for other people? What, what's helpful for other people's? Putting their needs ahead of your needs. Even sometimes we have to understand that there is a need to put others' feelings beyond above your feelings. Now, that is not to disregard the gospel. That is not to disregard truth, but that is to be aware sympathetic, empathetic concerning others. Okay. So let's go on to the text. And so now as we get into chapter, I'm sorry, <laughs> verse number five and beyond, we get into what is called now that ode song to Christ often, often called the common Christian. And what Paul is now going to do is he's going to use the Messiah Jesus as the ultimate example of humility and considering the needs of others above your own, considering the interests of others, above your own and the very dynamics of what he is going to say as he brings about, talks about 
Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, that is, before he became flesh, how he makes that comparison to the glorious God of all creation in what he did. And he sets him as an example to us. If the God of all creation can do and be this way, what should we Again, that Galatians 6 and 3, we who are nothing, we who are nothing but earthen vessels, we who are made of the dust of the earth. Notice the difference. Notice the language of uh, 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 the lowering in the language. God compared to dirt man. If God can do this, what should we do? And that's going to be that driving point of emphasis. Okay, but let's just get into the text because I'm prolonging this unnecessarily. Have this attitude in yourselves, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Okay, so let me stop there because there was so much stuff to get into, all right? So now he sets forth Jesus as the example and he says, five, verse number five, have the same mindset, attitude in you. In other words, Follow the example of Christ. And he's going to talk about, he's going to expand and explain what he means when he talks about the example of Christ. But first he talks about the person of Christ. The attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, verse number six. And now we're going to have to touch a lot of that Greek in this part here. Who, although he existed in the form of God, uh, uh, who Okay, let's just do the Greek. Has in more faith than That is, who in form of God being. I like that. In more faith That is, Jesus before he came into flesh, before uh, uh, being conceived in the womb of Mary, Jesus pre-existed, and that's that word, huparkun, huparkun, I'm sorry, which means to be or to exist. Jesus existed eternally in times past, but how did he exist? And that's when it brings that idea of in more faith, in the very form, in more faith, in the very form of God. So, it's, it's mind blowing. How did Jesus exist in all of eternity past before coming into the flesh in the very form of God himself in the he existed. He shared. He shared the being of God. So as God, the father is so was Jesus in form, in the very form of God. And so, so this is 
to, to, to use the word or the language and elevated form of existing is it, ridiculous. You can't even use terminology like that because to say elevated, we, we compare that in our sense of existence. But the existence of God is so much beyond human existence. There is nothing to compare it with. It is in a state of existence to be compared with nothing. It a state all of all of his own, all of his own, the very form of God. He who exists, the and I am who the one who is, who was and will be the self existing God, the very form of God. OK, OK, enough of that, enough of that. So this is Jesus. So this exalted state of existence is what he had before coming into flesh. What about it? What about it? Verse number six, although he existed in that form of God, he did not regard Although having this existence, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I understand the point of what they're trying to make. Having this form of existence, glorious, without anything equal to it, you got it? Equal with God. He did not regard, he did not think it, this form something to be grasped. And that here, it is this, uk hapagmon, and that uk hapagmon egesata, ta ena hisa teo. That is, and this is the literal Greek, not robbery. He did not think it robbery. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He did not think it robbery. What? Uh, the to be equal. And I like And you all. Oh, okay. 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 I don't want to get too excited because I am. Because if you actually read all of this in Greek, you'll see that Paul loves to use that definite article in the neuter with a form of the infinitive verb to speak of something directly. So he uses that infinitive verb in an objective sense. Okay, but enough Greek grammar. Probably lost most of you guys in that. I'm sorry, I didn't intend to. But if you do know Greek, you, you could appreciate what was going on there. But let's go back to the text. So what is he saying? Not uk harpagmon, not robbery. Harpagmon is robbery. And that's what they translate to be grasped to be grasped. He did not think it robbery. Uh, uh, what? The to be, the to be, that is the ta, ena, isa, theoi. The to be equal with God. So that's why they translated the, the idea is the thing that equality with God, that existing in the very form of God to remain in this state he did not think that in some way or another, he was being robbed of it. And or that is, and they translated something to be, something to hold on to, something to, to grasp to. In other words, I don't want to lose this. And I don't want this in a sense, in a sense, to be taken away from me. Now, we're going to talk about the sense of taken away from me, which is why they said they translated it to be grasped. Why? It was not, that is, the Father. God the Father did not 
take something away. Take this form of God. He did not take it away from Jesus. We are going to talk about that in the very next section. Okay. But the essence of what Paul is trying to bring out is this glorious form that Jesus had with God, the father equal with God, the father, something that just blows our mind, goes beyond our imagination. Jesus himself did not think that form of God to be something that he wanted. And I, what's in my mind is to say he wanted to hold on to that for dear life. He wanted to hold on to that with all that he had. Don't, I don't want this to be taken away from me. And that's the feel of it. So ultimately he did not think or regard that glorious form, something that he wanted to hold on to, but let's, let's step ahead just a little bit, but he considered the needs of humanity. He considered the needs of humanity. In other words, going back to that thought that Paul is in interjecting what he considered others greater than himself and not that so much greater than himself in that sense, but more so the needs of others. He could regard one another as more important to yourself. What by putting their interests above your own. And so what is he saying here? Jesus put the interests of unsaved and notice if I did a little preaching unsaved, unworthy sinners, unworthy in any shape, form or fashion. But nevertheless, he put their needs ahead of his own desire to maintain that form, right? Because what he is going to, that form is going to be changed from that glorious existence that he once had with the father to a very lowly existence, uh, 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 to condescend. Th that's what Christ will do, condescend. But anyway, let's, go, let's continue with the text. Uh, verse number seven, but what did Jesus do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So now we got it. But what did Jesus do? Remember that that, that stay with the full thought, having this glorious form of God being equal with God in every respect. And Jesus not, did not stop being equal with God once he became flesh. But in becoming flesh, he no longer had that form of God. Why? He had the form of a lowly human being. And what is that form that I even contrasted earlier that takes, your, takes our mind all the way back to Genesis chapter two. And you can see God taking from the dust of the ground and as lowly ground dirt in comparison to heavenly being of God himself. So what did he do? He emptied himself. And that's that word. Oh, what? That's verse number seven. Allah, El Ton, Ekenison. 
uh, morphine duolo labon. That is what? But that's that Allah. I remember I told you that Allah was that sharp contrast, sharp contrast of that form of God. He didn't hold to that form of God. He didn't grasp to that form of God. He did not think it robbery that this form he should maintain, but sharp contrast. What? Eatone, that, that is himself, he emptied. So that is what we call reflexive, reflexive. Himself he emptied. And the reason why I emphasize that now is because remember when I told you this, that form of God, and I told you that God the Father did not uh, uh, take Jesus' form, that form of God. God the Father did not take it away from him. But what? Verse seven lets us see what actually happened. Jesus emptied himself. He gave it up. He voluntarily gave it up. He voluntarily gave up being in this glorious form of God so that he could serve humanity. And that's the very theme of what Paul keeps trying to say. You have to be humble to the point that you consider others needs even before your own greater than your own. Consider the greatness of God, the son. But nevertheless, what did he do? He gave it up. He emptied himself. And this is what we also understand as and we can say it this way, the laying aside, the laying aside of the divine prerogative. What I mean when I say that is in all of the sense that it means to be God, to act, act like God, to do the God things. Jesus laid these things aside temporarily to become the Christ. And remember, whenever we speak of the Christ, we are always talking about Jesus taking on flesh. We're talking about his humanity, Jesus becoming a man. And in becoming a man, he did not act in all, in every sense, in every sense at all times as God. He did not. This is what we mean by the laying aside of the divine prerogative that all the time. Notice what I'm saying. You got to notice what I'm saying, that all the time exercising uh, omniscience, knowing all things that all the time exercising, even though he did in the divine being of God that he shared, but in that physical form of a man, he was not everywhere at all times. I hope you guys understood that sharing the divine being of God. He always shared the divine being of God at all times, even in his pre-incarnate state or once he became a man, he continued to share the being of God, but he did not exercise that divine presence, that omnipresence. Why? Because once he became a man, the son of Mary, he was at one place. At one time, he was in Galilee. He was in Capernaum. He was in Jerusalem. So therefore, he was not exercising as he once did that omnipresence of God. You understand that? But anyway, and, and so 
and that power omnipotence. Jesus did not always exercise that great power. At times you would see Jesus becoming weary and coming to the uh, uh, well of Jacob, John chapter four. And at times you would see Jesus becoming sleepy as he was weary with sleep and falling asleep in the boat. And at times you would see Jesus being hungered as he was tempted by Satan. You see, so that as God, he would never experience these things. But what did he do? Himself, he emptied. He voluntarily laid these things aside in order to become a man. Why? Only as a man can he become the Christ, the Messiah. And only the shed blood, Isaiah chapter 53, only in the book of Hebrews 9 and 10, only the shed blood of the Messiah can take away sin. Thus, in becoming man, Jesus was serving the interest of others. But in order to serve the interest of others to become man, he had to empty himself of this wonderful being in the form of God. You see that? So that's why Paul said, let this mind be in you. Follow the example of Christ. He himself being glorious and we ain't no glorious being whatsoever. And now let me say it that way. We ain't glorious at all. We are nothing but earthen vessels. We live today and are dead tomorrow. We are nothing. So we are not giving up anything like the Lord Jesus. He is the ultimate expression of humility and service. No one is greater than him. But anyway, let me continue on with the text. Emptying himself in a form of a servant, morphine dualu, and that, that servant literally, and I like that. Man, I want to shout. I like that. And I want, I want to shout and I want to repent. All at the same time, what did Jesus take the form? We translate that servant, but the word dualos literally means a slave, a slave. And he was not a slave of man, but he was a slave to man. He was God's slave, the father's slave. He was sent here to do the father's will and who was the beneficiary we were. Therefore his service was unto us. And it also shows too the sharp contrast. And this is what I like to use that term. And I often, my mind just skips it so many times. Condescension, condescension to come from the being of God to man is like, it's like us, it, 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 it cannot be equally compared, but just think of it like us, man, the glory of God's creation, because that's what man is. All of a sudden, man becoming a cockroach to go from being a man to being a cockroach. All right, <laughs> that's what that was like. But anyway, the, of a sir, he took on the form of a servant. So that capacity, as a slave to the will of God to serve God, right? Now let us continue this. So being found, I don't know if I read that or not. 
being found, I think I did, but let me just read it anyway. Being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Yes, I read it. I remember now. So now being found as a man, he humbled himself. So now we see the second part of this concept, right? That is, he voluntarily uh, uh, relinquished uh, 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 any claim, any holding on, grasping to a glorious existence equal with God. He voluntarily did this and he did what? He humbled himself. And that is the point that Paul is trying to make. That is the very essence of what he is commanding. Humility in order for us to consider the needs of others above ourselves, in order for us to consider others to be greater than ourselves, the first thing that we have to do is humble ourselves. The problem is the pride, the pride that is in us. And that's the last thing, it makes me wanna, it makes me hot as a six shooter. Everybody always plays the lying, faking game. I don't have pride, I don't have pride. You are a liar and the truth ain't in you. All of us have pride. We all struggle against the sinful nature of pride that is in each and every one of us. And until we recognize pride in our heart, ain't no way you can humble yourself. Understand the first and greatest enemy is pride. Yea, six things God hate. Seven are abomination to to God. And what is the first on the list? A proud look, pride. But anyway, what did Jesus do? Jesus has no pride. God has no, man, I like that. I have thought about that. You guys don't realize I've spent countless hours of just simply reflecting on that. God has no pride. None whatsoever. Jesus has no pride. And notice this. Let me, let me, let me talk. Let me make an aside. I share with you. But then you look at the scripture, all praise, all glory, and all honor is due to God. He alone is worthy. His name is worthy to be praised. And God shares his glory with no flesh. God, all the honor. All, so th that, and then the first thing you would say, as you consider this, as you consider this, we sinful creatures in the flesh, that's kind of prideful to think that you all of that and you should get all the glory and you should get all the honor. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because the very nature of pride is to desire some form of praise or glory or to think of yourself in some exalted manner when you ain't nothing. Where do we come from? We come from, we are creatures made from the dust of the earth, made by God himself. Now, where does God come from? He doesn't. He has always existed. He always will exist. Okay. And what do we have? I don't care whether it's substance, material things, whether it's wisdom, whether it's knowledge, whatever a man has, a person has, he has received that from God. Now, 
When, what does God have? God has everything, all knowledge, all power, all glory, all things belong to God. And who gave it to him? Nobody. They are his inherently that they belong to him. They were made by him. Thus, do you see the point that I'm driving? With God, there can be no pride because he is all of that. He is the glorious one. He owns all things and he possesses all things. And to him, so rightfully, notice the term, rightfully glory, praise, honor, majesty, worship to, should be to God alone. What? That's just him by nature. But to us, we are creatures who are given these things. So here's where Paul says, and if you have been given these things, how can you boast? How, where is boasting when, if it hadn't been given to you, you wouldn't have it in the first place. But anyway, okay. Enough of that, but it helps you to see there is no pride with God because what he is rightfully do these things and there is no pride with the Lord Jesus rightfully being in the form of God. He is do what all the praise, all the worship, all the honor, all the glory is due unto him. But nevertheless, what? He still emptied himself and what he humbled himself, humbled himself being found like a man. And to what degree was Jesus's service to the father on our behalf? How much humbling? What was the very of uh, 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 the greatest point, the greatest point of Jesus's humility? Death even death on a cross. And let me talk about that. Not just simply he humbled himself to the point of death, but on a cross, death on a cross, death on a cross, a shameful death, a painful death. And so you've got to take all of that involved, not just the, the cross itself, but all that pertain to the Lord's suffering. You see, Remember in your mind when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin council in a mock trial in the middle of a night, a sham trial in the middle of a night. Remember how they false accused him and then they condemned him wrongly. And what did they begin to do? They blindfolded him. What else? They spat upon him. You need to think about what I just said. This is the God of creation and you, the creature, you spit on the God of creation in my sinful mind. Now, this is my sinful, arrogant mind. I would have incinerated you. I would have taken you completely out of existence so that you would not even have ever existed before. I would have taken you out of the memory of men so that no one will ever even known of your name. Now that's what I would have done because I'm a sinner and I struggle with the pride stuff, but that's not what he did when they spat upon him and they began to beat him over and over again and snatch the hairs from his beard. But that wasn't enough. 
They took him and lied before Pilate, the governor, and then what else? And then Jesus was chastised by the Roman soldier, scourging. And I don't want to go into all of what that is, but most men did not even survive the scourging. That's why Jesus wasn't able to carry his own cross. They almost beat him to death. They ripped the skin from his face. They beat him unrecognizable. That's why Pilate had to say it. Behold the man. He was unrecognizable when the Roman soldiers got through beating him. But that wasn't enough. Stripped him of his clothing that Jesus would be naked. None of us want to appear naked but stripped him of his clothing that he would be naked, nailed him to a cross and set him up in front of everybody and ridiculed him. Now this is what he did. So he says what? He humbled himself with service to God the Father. And what was the very, the greatness of that service? The greatness was death, but not just any old kind of death, but death. On a cross, the humiliation and the shame and the pain of it all. This is what Jesus did for the service of others. And it takes my mind right back to Paul. And you let this mind be in you. And you ain't no God having no form of God and having to lower yourself, condescend in this manner. And you ain't going to suffer like this, but nevertheless, the glorious one of heaven did just that. And he gave his life in service, thinking on our needs. Okay, let's go on. For this reason, verse number nine, because it's longer, it's always longer than I anticipate. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, and so now, <laughs> this is the end of the common Christian. What, uh, for this reason that is, because Jesus has done this in the humbling and lowering, voluntary lowering of himself. God the Father has exalted Jesus to give him a name that is above every name. That it will come a time, it will come a time in, in existence. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it that the name of Jesus will be sounded in creation. And when Jesus's name will be sounded in creation at the remembrance of what God, the son has done in the humbling and lowering of himself at the remembrance of this, that name, when it is sound, every knee will bow. And when he says every knee, that means every knee of all created creatures of every creature, no matter where you are. And I don't want to get into that. Let me just simply say, no matter where the creature is, that's why Paul said, whether in heaven, on earth, or even under the earth, no matter where they are, every knee will bow 
and every tongue will confess. Here's what I want you to do. Let's go back to that tongue will confess. What verse is that? Because I want to do that in the degree. Verse number 11. And every tongue will confess. Kaposa glosa. Uh, all tongues. Exomologeseta. All tongues uh, might confess. These are all in the subjunctive that is being translated like in the future tense. But it's the, it is in the actual Greek subjunctive. Haunty. Here's the point. Haunty. Kurios Hisu Christa, that Lord Jesus is. And we translate it because we don't say Lord Jesus is. We translate it that Jesus is Lord. But the Greek, Kurios Hisu Christa, the Greek Kurios, meaning Lord, and is used in the sense of the divine name, the divine name. The emphasis is being placed on the divinity of the Lord Jesus, the divinity of the Lord Jesus. So it kind of takes us all the way back to the beginning. What? Jesus being God, equal with God, found in the very fashion of God, but nevertheless, for the redemptive purposes, for the redemptive purposes, considering the needs of sinful, no good unworthy humanity. He took upon himself human flesh, a man, and even a slave of God to ultimately give his life for sin, life given even on a cross itself. And because of this, God the Father has Highly exalted Jesus, highly given him an exalted name greater than any other name. So that at the sound of his name, every knee, everywhere begin to bow and confess. And what do they confess? Indeed, he is Lord. Or let me tell you like it is saying, God, indeed. He is not just a man, but God, Kurios, Yesu, Christos, Jesus is Lord. The emphasis here is the divinity, right back to the divinity that he once had in the beginning. So the whole point, since we finished that section, and I'm going to come to the 18, whole point of all of this is, Paul is saying, when we consider the Lord Jesus, how he was and what he did, that is something magnificent. Follow the example of Christ. First thing first, you got to humble yourself. You got to deal with the pride in your heart, because the only way that you're going to put other people's needs in front of your needs, you got to first deal with the pride, me, myself and I. You got to deal with that. You got to put that secondary and put the needs of other people in front of your own. And you have not done anything special. You haven't done anything near what the Lord Jesus has done. But nevertheless, consider his example and follow that example. Humble yourself and serve and place the needs of others in front of your own. Okay, so let's continue on. Let's, let's bring it to a close. So then, my beloved, verse 12, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation 
with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will that that's that infinitive construct again that I love, but I ain't going in it both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So then, so then he kind of wraps it up with the verse number 12, hoste, going back to my Greek text, hoste. So then my beloved, so with respect to what I've just been saying in following the example of Christ, work out your salvation. You do this because this is a part of your salvation living. This is what it means to live a saved life. And I like this too. It shows responsibility. It shows what responsibility you work out your salvation. You have a responsibility to respond to what Paul is saying. That is what humble yourself, put the needs of others ahead of you. You do this. This is your responsibility and you do it with humility of mind in fear of God, with fear and trembling. You ain't did nothing special. Don't start patting yourself on the chest because you think you're, because then you're, you're taken away from the humility of the work itself. But what? Do this with humility of mind in fear of God. Work it out. Obey the commandments of God. Live in a way that's pleasing to God with fear and trembling, always looking unto Christ Jesus, your judge in the future with fear and trembling. But I got to finish this part. What? Uh, uh, um, for it is God who is at work in you. And I, I like that. I like that. I like that. Even though the responsibility of righteous living falls on our shoulders, you are responsible for living this way, humble way putting others need before you and however God tells you to live. This is your responsibility. This is our responsibility, but notice how he takes away. He literally vacuums. He sucks out the air of any pride that might rise up because you think you've been following the commandments of God. What? 13. It is God who is at work in you. Even though the responsibility of righteous living is ours, you ain't did nothing. Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't start feeling good because you think you're keeping the commandments of God. Why? Because the only reason why you are, you are keeping the commandments of God is because God is working in you. That is, think of it this way. Take God out the equation and you ain't doing nothing. And that's why I like when Jesus said this and John, I was it John 14. I think it is John 14 and 15 when he says, I've sent you into this world that you might bear fruit. And I want you to have a lot of fruit, but understand this, the bearing fruit is the keeping God's righteous commandment, doing what Jesus is saying, but understand this, what without me, you can do nothing. I don't care what you think you are doing. It is only because God has enabled you to do that. So he just slaps and he takes away pride. God hates pride. But anyway, back to the text, because I get really animated and even angry because I think of pride. I struggle with it, but still I'm on God's side when it comes to pride. Let us all be humble because ain't nobody nothing. But it is God who is working in you. What? 
both to will that mindset to do good, to do right, and to work for his good pleasure. It ain't because of you. It's not what you want. It's what God wants. So the reason why we do these things, number one, he said, it's two things. Your responsibility for that righteous living, you live right. In that strong context here, putting others need, being humble and putting others needs in front of your own, right? That's your responsibility. Now you do that, but at the same time, sucks out any sense of pride because God is the one who is working inside. You are doing this because it's God who is enabling you to do these things. It is God. It is God's will that is set within you to work and do the things that are what pleasing ultimately to God. Okay. But anyway, so he said now in response, closing out this section, you do what I say because it is the will of God. You do it like God wants you to do it. Okay. Let's move on. 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I like that. I like that. Then he says this, what do all things living your whole life, Christian life without grumbling or disputing. And I like that word grumbling. Now I'm going to probably mess up the pronunciation, but the pronunciation is, uh, 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 the word gongook song, gongook song. I like that. The little grumbling, it literally means behind the scene talk, behind the scenes talk. Isn't that beautiful? Behind the scenes, you know, you may not speak overtly, outwardly or directly or whatever, but you can kind of see, it takes your mind back to what the children of Israel would do. They would grumble. They would, when Moses would say something or certain things would happen, they would be at home or they would be with one another complaining behind the scenes. He said, no, 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 this is not Christian conduct. Do all things when God gives a commandment. When God tells you what he wants done, there is no grumbling. There is no complaining. You do all things without no back talk, no under your breath talking. I almost want to preach right there. But whatever God says to do, there's one response. Amen. Amen. You don't argue with the word. You don't fight with the word. You do what God says. And, and I almost got a serious attitude. I almost got a serious attitude. And I wanted to say dirt of the ground because that's what we are. Dirt from the ground. And I like what did God say to Adam? From dirt you came and dirt you shall return. That's what you are. Help us to understand the need of humility and lowering absence of pride. But anyway, let me go. Let me go. Let me go. So don't do that. 
so that you will prove yourself. Now, this is not the Dokimos word that I like. I highlighted that in the green. It's not Dokimos. So that you will show yourself or so that you will become Gaganos. I think that's the word that is actually used in the green. So that you will be, show yourself to be what? Blameless and innocent. Your conduct will be what? Blameless and innocent, showing indeed you are what? By the way that you live, children of God above reproach, when especially in comparison to when you look out unto a crooked and perverse generation. Our lives, the way that we think, the way that we do, the way that we live and conduct ourselves is so far different from the world. That's why he calls it a crooked and perverse generation because that's what the people, the godless people who don't live according to the word of God, that's who and what they are, crooked and perverse. And we are so far different from them, these who are in darkness, that we shine as lights in the world. So imagine a word, imagine the stars, how that the stars are so distinct and different from the canopy of darkness in the night sky. All of that blackness until all of a sudden we see a star here, a star there, a star here, a star there. And that's what Paul says we are. We are that we are those stars that are shining in the darkness of a crooked sinful world and the, notice the antecedent of that but we are righteous we are living lives that are pure innocent and blameless okay enough of that finally finishing it but even if oh, oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry let me finish that section let me finish that section so that in the day of christ i need to finish that because he keeps saying paul keeps referring to what the day of christ I have reason to glory that I did not run in vain or toil in vain. I like that. That's the part I was really like. He says, so what? In the day of Christ, that is when Jesus appears in the day of judgment, when we all stand before the Lord, when everything is over and, 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 and I am standing with Christ and I see you standing also with Christ. And Jesus has looked at you and said, well done. Y'all did really good, you Philippians. Paul says, as, as I am observing how well you have done and what the Lord has said about you in the judgment, I feel wonderful because what? I know my preaching to you was not in vain. I did not run or labor in vain, everything that I was doing to teach you, to strengthen you, and to build you up in Christ Jesus. Did it pay off? Paul said, yeah, it paid off. Because what? In the final day of judgment, when we all stood before the Lord, he told those Philippians, you did well. And Paul said, I felt really good when I saw that. Amen. And that's what every preacher and every pastor wants to feel about those he has ministered to that in the day of Christ, he wants to feel like he didn't labor in vain. But anyway, finishing it out 17, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice 
and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So he continues on in the whole issue about their living right. He moves even to the sense of, once again, as we talked about the last video at the end of chapter one, the sense of suffering, suffering, because here he begins to use sacrificial language that is the Levitical. We don't have time to go through all of that thing, but in the times of the giving of the sacrifices for Levitical sacrifices, they would often pour drink offerings upon the offering, okay, upon the altar, drink offering upon the offering, indication sacrifice. That's why he said, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, I, Paul, am being poured out like, what in comparison to, a drink offering on for, that is, for the service of your faith. Paul is speaking of his imprisonment. That's about, that's the point. Paul right now is in Roman imprisonment, but why? For the service of their faith, serving them for preaching the gospel. He has been arrested and he himself is suffering these things for his service to them as well as to other people. And that's why he names it in this thing of he like the drink offering being poured out upon the offering for the service of faith. But what, even though he's suffering these things, is he feeling sorry for himself? Does he have any regret? No, I rejoice. And what, I share my joy with you all, and I want you also join in me. It takes us all the way back to chapter one, about the suffering, to share with the sufferings, to share in the sufferings is also to share in the joy. Okay. All right. Finally finished with all of that. So the very essence, and we don't want to have to rehearse everything. Paul is simply saying, follow. He inferred earlier his own example. Remember he says two things to consider for me to continue in life to continue on in the flesh or to die and to be with Christ, which is very much uh, far greater, far better. He says, I got a couple of choices. He said, but I'm not going to do what's best for me. I'm going to do what's best for you. Continue in the flesh so that I might continue the ministry towards you. So that he inferred at the end of chapter one, but he gets into chapter two where we are today ultimate example of service. The ultimate example is Jesus himself to consider him how Jesus existed in the very form of God. He did not think this to something to be grasped, something that he's being robbed of to hold on to at all costs. But Jesus voluntarily emptied himself. He gave it up that laying aside of the divine prerogative, for the service of others. And he took upon humanity, flesh and blood being made as a slave to God, the father to suffer the ultimate indignation, death on a cross, all of this for the service of others. Thus you follow the example of Jesus, empty yourself of pride and arrogance, so that you might serve the needs of others. Put them ahead of yourself. And what also was inferred, and just as Jesus 
was highly exalted by giving a name greater than any other name as Jesus himself was highly exalted. So guess what you're going to find out in the end, even though this is not mentioned in the text, but it is mentioned in Revelation. God, our Lord, will give you a stone and he will give you a new name. So thus, as Jesus was exalted because of his own humiliation, he abased himself. You too, in the end, will be exalted when you humble yourself. And this is also taught by Peter. I think it's first Peter. When Peter teaches, humble yourself before God. What? And he will lift you up. Anyway, so nevertheless, Paul says, follow the example of Christ. Live righteously in this ugly, sinful, and corrupt world. So that what? When I see you in the judgment, you'll stand as being approved by Jesus. And I'll have this great flush of emotion feeling well because I see that my work and labor with you was not in vain. And you know what? Even though I'm suffering, even at this present time, I ain't mad. I don't feel bad about it. I rejoice. And you too, remembering that I told you that you'll suffer. You know what? I want you to share the same thing with me and rejoice. All right. All right, guys. Thank you for joining me in all of that. Always long, but I always enjoy the word of God. And if you too have enjoyed this teaching, there's a link in the description. And also we know that YouTube has this little thank you button that you can use to support the ministry. If the Lord has touched your heart and this has blessed you, support. And always, I pray, pray for me. And for those who have supported the ministry, let me say thank you. And of course, always remember to do the like and subscribe. All right, guys. God bless you. See you next time.